According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14. And uh, we're ready to look now. We've wrapped up uh, 17 and verse 17. We're ready to go on to verses 18 and 19. I'm going to go back over and kind of look at the ground we've covered already. I have a sense maybe that we've slowed down and I'm not sure if I like that or not or what the Lord's doing with that. So uh, every so often I kind of go back and get a larger view on, well, just how many classes did we teach in chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and kind of get an average number of classes per chapter. And then if I find that there's some of these later chapters have really just crunched into the mire, then uh, then I wrestle with that. I wrestle hard with that and pray and ask the Lord, you know, is this is this what you want the flock to receive? And uh, should we try to speed things along? Because, uh, I mean, we could spend 100 years in Proverbs and not exhaust at all, but is that what the Lord would have for us to do? So anyway, pray for that. Pray for me as we uh, try to try to see what the Lord has. For this morning, though, um, we were talking about a quick-tempered man a week ago dealing with uh, that. Uh, verse 17 says, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. We also have reference in verse 29, he who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. So I uh, kind of cheat a little bit by grabbing verse 29 and including it here in verse 17, and that way we don't have to deal with it again. When we get to verse 29, but we looked at that. We looked at that last week and saw uh, different things. So I'm going to open us up in prayer and then we'll uh, jump right back into where we left it off. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your grace and truth. Uh, Father, thankful for your faithfulness. And Father, we have quite a number of folks that are out sick this morning or didn't sleep well last night. And I'll be honest, Father, I'm pretty tired myself here this morning. But all of this is in your hands and uh, you know what you're doing, Father. So be faithful, overcome and overpower in your overruling will. Uh, Any human limitations on the part of the speaker or on the part of the hearers, And Father, glorify your Son on this day. Thank you for powerful material that you have uh, prepared. Thank you, and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, having a quick temper is a problem. Having a short nostril is a problem. And the idiom is uh, is that. And if you're snorting mad, that's not good. Uh, Unless you're snorting mad at the right object. And that is good. And uh, we see uh, the different words that are used for anger, like nostril, and how they're used of God, and God very often is angry. Uh, but He is not quick, uh, quick to anger, He's slow to anger. And so He eventually gets there, and when He gets there, He is snorting mad. All right, It just took Him a while to get there. Because in His long-suffering and in His graciousness, in His mercy, He is longing to repent. He's longing to reward repentance with His mercy. And so that's uh, the pattern. And we're called to emulate that pattern. Long-suffering is a fruit of the Spirit. Long-suffering is what we're called to do. Um, But if there is something that God is angry at and we are not angry, that's wrong. If we have a different attitude than God on any topic, we're wrong. Okay, And that includes the things He's pleased with, the things He's not pleased with, the things that He loves, the things that He hates, the things that He's angry about. And uh, we we want to make sure that we keep ourselves biblical and we don't fall into the world's trap by convincing ourselves that hate is always wrong and anger is always wrong. When it's rightly directed, it's godly. And when it's appropriately applied, it's godly. And uh, we need to be clear on that. Also, we want to be clear that the things that are sinful, we want to have God's solutions to the sins, not the world's solutions to the sins. All right? We're not going to turn to the world's provision for anything. You know, so we don't turn to the, to alcohol to drown out our sorrows. We don't turn to, uh, drugs or to women or to, you know, other things. People will use the world's methods as if it's a problem solving device. All right? And then the, the, your carnality has a possible solution to uh, to anger, and that's called um, 
the slow, calculating, uh, evil devices of revenge, all right? Um, the satanic improvement, and I put that in quotes, quote unquote, because it's not an improvement. But the second half of this verse, uh, where it says, uh, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly and a man of evil devices is hated. Put those two halves of the verses together, or the verse together, and you realize the slow scheming evil is not an answer to the quick temper. <laughs> okay? Slow scheming evil. The man of evil devices. And so um, you might have an appearance of calmness, might have an appearance of wisdom. Uh, the fact that somebody doesn't fly off the handle and react to a circumstance can be admirable, can be praiseworthy. And you might look into a person without knowing his heart, without knowing any better, or what is empowering him, or what is driving this, and you might be led, or I might be led to think, wow, that's a very patient person. Wow, that's a very, uh, that, that's a person that uh, has the fruit of the Spirit, or uh, I want to emulate that, and little do I know. Uh, all of that is an external show of patience because what's really happening is that darkened heart is 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 plotting the revenge. You know, the the, the dish that's best served up cold, uh, is, is, he's getting ready to stick that knife in the first chance that he gets. So um, anyway, uh, God hates it. We should hate it as well. Uh, the uh, the slow scheming evil. So uh, anyway, it's it's uh, an issue that we see here in Proverbs uh, fourteen. Uh, there was a previous reference in Proverbs twelve, in verse two. A good man will obtain favor from the Lord, but he will condemn a man who devises evil. Again, evil is something, but then to devise a scheme, to devise a, to create a device, okay? And even the word device uh, communicates that you have used some inventiveness to devise it, all right? Now, did we look at all these verses? I think we did. We looked at all these verses and we were running out of time last week. Yes, no, maybe so. I do recall Psalm 139. The only one I'm, not, I'm fuzzy about is if we had the time to look at Jeremiah. Did we look at Jeremiah? Okay, well then we're going to move on then and gain some new ground. But just keep in mind this whole aspect of taking our God-given creativity, whereby God is the creator, but we are in the image of God and we are creative in the image of God. And, and to use our creativity for satanic uh, purposes is just, it's unthinkable. It's, it's horrendous, see. And, uh, and this is what happens when we create a device or a scheme for uh, this slow scheming evil. All right, well then that gets us beyond these issues and we're able to turn then to verse 18 and 19. Proverbs 14, verses 18 and 19. The naive, here's Pethy again, the naive inherit foolishness. But the sensible are crowned with knowledge. The evil will bow down before the good, and the wicked at the gates of the righteous. So we're going to take these verses as a unit. We're going to move on beyond that and take verses 20 and 21 as a unit, and might even include 22 as well. I haven't decided yet how the poetry there best lines up. But for today, we're going to stick with 18 and 19 and deal with this. All right? So Proverbs 14, 18, the naive inherit foolishness, but the sensible are crowned with knowledge. Uh, again, here's our contrast. Uh, Pethi with Arum, the same characters we've been looking at, the same characters that we've been dealing with, uh, such as verse 15. Remember, the naive believes everything, but the sensible man considers his steps. Remember that? And so there's Pethi, who just believes everything, no matter what, swallows it all, doesn't think twice, doesn't look into it. And then there's the sensible, Arum, and he stops and he slows down and he says, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Should I put my faith in this object? Is this what God would have me put my faith in? And if God would not have me put my faith in it, why, you know, why is Pethy putting his faith in it? <laughs> okay? And so the sensible slows down and thinks and applies principles and, and, uh, and applies it well. So we're accustomed to these characters already. Um, what happens, though, with these verses, same characters, what happens, though, with these verses, we, we start to move forward in a prophecy. We start to move forward in an eschatological fulfillment. And so point 12 in the outline, we have these terms, and we pay attention to these terms. They jump out at us. We have a term like inherit. 
which we've seen before. But here we have inherit. Inherit's not always future. Inherit can be present, but it's in tandem with some other expressions as well, like crowned. Crowned is definitely future-looking. Inherit and crowned take the contrast of pethi and arum, and it brings these principles forward into an eschatological and eternal focus. Again, point 12. Inherit and crowned take the contrast of pethi and arum into an eschatological and eternal focus. And remember, um, this is huge, and we want to we recognize this. The value of doctrine, the value of the Word of God applies to us, and we benefit from it both in time and in eternity. The things we study for our growth, we apply now, but we're also benefiting ourselves in rewards, benefiting ourselves in our growth for all eternity. And this is uh, maybe... Um, a weakness uh, in, in how we've been approaching Proverbs and something that uh, I'm going to think about maybe seeing if we can stress it better in the Proverbs class ahead because um, too many people, I think, limit the, the wisdom literature, limit Proverbs to the here and now. And they, they love Psalms, they love Proverbs, and they say, oh, it's so practical, I want to live it out now. And yes, I don't dispute that. I absolutely agree with you. Proverbs is very practical for the here and now but not to the detriment of eternity. Okay, So try to gain both, glean both, the present benefit and the future benefit, the eternal benefit of, uh, of Proverbs, of wisdom literature, of the Word of God, any doctrinal study. Okay, And so we have terms like inherit, we have terms like crowned, we have expressions like um, the evil will bow down before the good. Well, tell me when that's going to happen. I'll mark my calendar, okay? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm still waiting. Uh, I, have, I haven't seen it yet, you know. Um, I've encountered a lot of evil. I've seen a lot of evil. Right now, it seems like here and now, today, it seems like the evil, they go in and they shoot up a school, okay? The evil, uh, I, I don't see them going in and bowing down before the good. I don't see... Um, the wicked at the gates of the righteous. I just don't see it. I don't see whereby uh, a, a city uh, dedicates themselves to the glory of Jesus Christ, the study of the Word of God, and they forcibly expel all unbelievers from the city limits. Wow. That would be fun. Let's do that. No, let's not do that. That'd be a misapplication, okay? We're not going to try to build a commune or a, a, a paradise here on earth, okay? But is there a day coming when there will be, uh, are, we, are we or are we not looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells? And does the description there of the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, does it not talk about how the wicked are outside the gates and how in fact the wicked never enter? Because for all eternity, the wicked are in the lake of fire. And uh, in the new heavens and new earth, we have only the saved, only the righteous for a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's why I'm kind of excited that Proverbs this morning is feeding into uh, the fullness of time study that uh, we'll be introducing tonight and uh, next week as warm-ups for the, for the Houston conference next month. All right. And so uh, we can look at it here. Um, first of all, inherit and crown. And, and there's more in the Old Testament about crowns than you might realize at first, uh, although it's, it's not as typically when you have crowns, it's, it's all with respect to King David or Solomon or one of the earthly kings, uh, something like that. When we're talking about rewards for the saints, crowns is typically a New Testament doctrine. Crowns is typically something that's, that's reserved for the New Testament, and yet here is an exception to the rule where we have an Old Testament passage referencing crowns that is eschatological in, uh, in an Old Testament sense. So um, we have had previous inheritance proverbs. So subpoint A, previous inheritance proverbs, they have been a mix. They have been a mix, either eternal such as Proverbs 3.35 and Proverbs 8.21, or temporal in nature. The temporal Proverbs have been 
Proverbs 11.29 and Proverbs 13.22. So when you see the word inheritance, you don't immediately have to jump to something in the future. Oftentimes, uh, in the Old Testament especially, the blessings of an inheritance are uh, presently realized. Okay, And we'll discuss that when we talk about the rich language of inheritance. of inheritance throughout the Old Testament. So this is now the fifth time we've come across uh, either a verb or a noun, uh, as as we do here in Proverbs 14, uh, 18, for inherit. Okay, And uh, the first two, I think, were more eternal in nature uh, in the parental wisdom section of the book. The second two have been more temporal in nature in the uh, personal and public wisdom portion of the book. Remember, there's a big division there at chapter 10. So when you, uh, as we back up here and we see chapter 13, I'm going to take them in backwards order. Uh, Back up a chapter to chapter 13. And you'll notice verse 22. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And so when we discuss that, did we not discuss that in the sense of temporal, in the sense of here and now, in the sense of what do we do uh, when we, as we prepare our estate and pass on uh, uh, the, when we pass on to our grandchildren, to the children's children, as it's there. So that seems to be in a in a temporal sense. Although the second half of the verse brings in the spiritual dynamic when it says the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous, and uh, applications we dealt with there. Backing up to verse eleven. But that's clearly on earth, right? The, the temporal application. I'm, it's an inheritance to my children's children, so they're still on earth receiving my inheritance when I, when I die. Likewise, Proverbs 11.29, uh, He who troubles his own house will inherit wind, and the foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. And we discuss the nature of this, again, as a temporal inheritance, something that we would receive here and now within the bounds of time something that uh, consequences that we would receive in in present time here and now might be still future but it's still temporal if that makes sense but these other uses proverbs 335 and proverbs 821 can we look at those on an eternal scope can we look at those as uh post-mortem eternal applications i think so Proverbs 8.21, when we talk about wisdom and uh, the benefits of living a life in the Word of God, he, um, let's see here, start with verse uh, 18, or even verse 17, I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness and we we discuss this we are we talking about earthly wealth at this point are we talking about heavenly wealth are we talking about eternal rewards because what else is enduring the the money of this earth is not enduring the money of this earth uh don't don't put your trust in the in uh in the uh, passing uh, 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 uh riches right but this is enduring wealth and righteousness my fruit is better than gold, even pure gold. My yield is better than choice of silver. And the language of yield speaks down the road, speaks to eternity. When you get the yield on your investment, I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice to endow those who love me with wealth that I may fill their treasuries. Where's your treasure? Is it in heaven? Okay, that's a good thing. Because uh, here on earth, uh, the thieves will break in and steal, the moth and rust will destroy. Uh, we're supposed to lay up our treasure in heaven. And so I think when we talk about um, an endowment, now that verb there, to endow, that's our verb that speaks of, uh, uh, to, uh, of inheritance, right? To dispense an, a, uh, an inheritance to your heirs. And so... Um, no, I view that on an eternal scope. I view that as, as uh, what uh, gets yielded when we are in glory. Proverbs 3.35. 
And maybe, uh, I don't know, the wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. Um, we talked about this. Though he scoffs at scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. That's the proverb that is quoted in, in James and First Peter, uh, where he's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 35, do, do we read this on an eternal level, or do we read this in a, in a, in a temporal uh, model? Where the wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. Okay? That one might even be a bit of both. That one might be, there's, yes, there's a practical benefit here in time just by using God's wisdom. Um, but ultimately, I'm, I'm viewing that more on an eternal scale than a temporal scale. In any event, we get to Proverbs 14, though, and uh, this inheritance, I think, is entirely eternal. It's connected with crowns, and it's connected with the wicked bowing down, and it's connected with the wicked excluded. All of that is is eternal in scope. All of that is kingdom focused. Now, while Nachal inherit and Nachalah inheritance are featured hundreds of times in the Old Testament, Kafir, crowned, is used only here. This verb, Kafir, for crowned, is used only here. And uh, we have a, a noun, kether, that's used three times in the book of Esther. There are other terms for crown, the crown of Solomon, the crown of David. There are other terms for crown, plenty of crowns throughout the Old Testament. But the kather use of crown is unique to this passage right here. This is set apart as something different, okay? And, uh, and I think that, I think that idea of being crowned, what do we have to look forward to to being crowned? The crown that we're going to receive, the rewards that are given to faithful believers, that is an eternal application. So um, I don't know how much of this I want to I spend time on. The, the Esther references are easy enough. We can grab those well enough. Uh, the, the verb also has other uses I think six altogether that have nothing to do with crowns, okay? Um, so if you pull up the Strong's number, this is a good thing. Uh, it's a good illustration for why sometimes strong numbers let you down. The Strong's, um, he, he assigned this number, uh, 3803 for Kothair. He assigned that number seven times to seven different uh, to, uh, verbs in the Old Testament. But ultimately speaking, um, there are really three different verbs that are all spelled kafir, okay? And so one verb that means to wait, one verb that means to surround, and one verb that means to crown, okay? And all three are kafir and probably should have been given separate Strong's numbers. Uh, but he didn't, and so he's dead now, and, and you know he did his work in the 1800s, so <laughs> uh, we have the numbers we have. And uh, for that is, is what it is. But thankfully, though, when you do your Logos word studies, um, Logos is going to break them down into three different word studies. And they're going to call them Kothair 1, Kothair 2, Kothair 3. And uh, all three uh, are comprised within the, uh, within the Strong's number. So does that make sense? If you have questions on that, I'll uh, be glad to answer those questions. Uh, maybe next Wednesday morning. Uh, remind me, we'll do, a, we'll do a, a training on that next Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock. All right. Um, so, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. We've got, we got, we got a verse that has terms like uh, inherit that we're very familiar with because they just saturate the Old Testament, and then it blends it or combines it in a tandem, in a, poet, in a, in a poem, with uh, a word that's quite unique. When a verb that's, that's uh, quite unique, it's, it's kather, which uh, doesn't mean to wait, doesn't mean to surround, okay? And I think the etymology is that if you, if you wrap a wreath around somebody's head or you put a crown around somebody's head, you're surrounding his, his uh, head with gold or, or whatever. So it's kind of the, the sense of why kather could be used to crown somebody um, or why a kether could be thought of as a crown, but it's, it's not the most common noun for crown anyway in... Uh, in the Old Testament. So, um, let's start with the nachal, nachal, nachala terminology. Uh, nachal is the verb N-A-C-H-A-L, 5157, and then you give it a feminine ending. Why are crowns feminine? 
uh, not crowns, inheritance, feminine. Um, I don't know. <laughs> some, some things defy explanation. But nachala, nachala, you just add the A-H on the end of nachal and you get nachala, and that's your feminine noun for inheritance. So we have a verb and we have a noun. And uh, together, hundreds of uses, over 260-something uses, I think. And I went ahead and made myself a little link there. And uh, so we can search them and we can bring them up. Oh, what does it say? Oh, New Testament. Let's change that to the whole Bible. There's no Nachal in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, of course. So, um, and I'm going to graph the results for you as well so that we can see those. There we go. That's what I want to do. And then graph that. There we go. All right. Pretty heavy in Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, right? That's the, that's the bulk of the, of the Old Testament where inheritance takes center stage. Because what's happening in Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua? Yeah, the wilderness wanderings, the generation that refuses to go in and claim their inheritance... And then the next generation that does go in and gets the inheritance. And uh, Joshua leads them in the conquest and they divide up the land to gain their inheritance. But it's a big deal. And uh, promised early in Genesis, referenced a couple of times in Exodus and Leviticus. But it really takes center stage in uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and uh, Joshua. Nearly 60 times each in uh, Deuteronomy, and, or I'm sorry, in Numbers and Joshua. Uh, over 30 times in uh, Deuteronomy. And then beyond that, Psalms. <clears throat> over 25 uses in Psalms. Uh, 15 in Jeremiah. Nearly 20 in, uh, in Ezekiel. Okay, so that kind of... Do the charts help? I like charts. It kind of helps and gives me, okay, this is, these are the books I want to stress. These are the books that uh, I want to turn to if I'm going to do a study on inheritance. Um, not to say I'm going to ignore the earlier passages. Rachel and Leah said to him, do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Remember when Laban was going back and forth with Jacob and stealing, uh, changing the terms and stealing the... Anyway, the, the sisters got together and said, this is, this is trouble. <laughs> uh, Genesis 48, 6. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. So what happens here? This is when Jacob decides to take two of his grandchildren and promote them. And so he takes the two sons of, of Joseph and he makes Manasseh and Ephraim now both sons instead of grandsons. And they get an inheritance equal to their uncles, equal to all the other brothers, right? So Judah and Levi and Simeon and all those guys, they got a, a portion of their inheritance, one-twelfth of, of course, uh, firstborn gets double portion. But then the grandsons now of Joseph, they get promoted to become equal with their uncles, and so this is a way to give Joseph double portion, even as, uh, of course, Judah receives double portion um, in his own tribe. But that centers on inheritance. And so right here with just the, the, the first use uh, between the sisters or the wives of Jacob and now the, uh, the heirs of Jacob, we see that inheritance in the Old Testament is always going to be connected to Israel. It's connected to, to, to Jacob. It is definitely a, 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 a facet of of uh, emphasis for Israel in, in, their, in their stewardship, okay? Is it as a big a deal for us in the church age, or is there a difference between the church and Israel? Are we all wrapped up about our tribe in the church? Are we, are we, all, are we all weird about uh, a land territory and this and that? No, of course not, because our citizenship's in heaven. Um, we don't have a land grant on this earth, okay? All right. Uh, in Exodus uh, chapter 15, you will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling. That's Exodus fifteen seventeen. as they pass through the Red Sea and they're singing the songs of praise and celebrating this. In um, Exodus 23, I find this interesting. Um, God actually was very gracious in how he 
promised to lead them in the conquest, that it wasn't going to be all at once. It was going to be little by little. Let me bring it up in a larger window here. He doesn't want to do it uh, all at once. All right, so here we go. No, there'll be no miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days, temporal blessings when they live in the land of promise. I will send my terror ahead of you. Look at that. God's a terrorist. Okay? Just joking. He will send the terror ahead of you. There are spiritual forces at work before human soldiers hit the battlefield. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. I will make all of your enemies turn their backs to you. So Jericho and Ai and all these places, uh, you got a bunch of pagans that are sitting there. Many of them are maybe even demoniacs and what have you. Uh, all of those pagan priests and they're doing all their demonic stuff. And uh, until the day comes and God sends in the angels and the archangels and the, the, the captain of the Lord of hosts leads the way. And then what happens? Every demon, every fallen angel, everything is just flushed out of there, swept away. And all of the humans left behind are kind of left impotent. They're left disempowered. They're left frightened. They're left quaking in their boots. And then they've got to face the mighty men of valor of Joshua and his troops and, and uh, these guys that can shout and knock a wall down. Okay, <laughs> So kind of fun to think about it. And then he says, I will send hornets ahead of you so they will drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, Hittites before you. But I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful. And when it says take possession, that is receive inheritance of the land. Okay? And that's why uh, we want to be clear on how sometimes inheritance is used of present enjoyment at more so than what I will get someday when somebody dies. Okay? Because Israel was supposed to have a present enjoyment of their, of their inheritance. That the land itself was their national inheritance. And they receive it from their fathers. They're going to pass it to their children. And presently, in their living generation, each living generation should enjoy the inheritance in their turn, in their, in their generation. Does that make sense? And so the Bible uses this a lot throughout the Old Testament where the inheritance, the enjoy, present enjoyment of the inheritance uh, was, was promised. And then sadly it was, it was forsaken when they decided to chase after idols or when they went into captivity or when other uh, divine discipline came along. Uh, they'd be under the thumb of Philistines or under the thumb of some foreign power. And so they could not presently enjoy their inheritance. Never lost their inheritance, but they couldn't presently enjoy the inheritance until a judge would deliver them and then they could get it back. See? Anyway, and I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and will drive them out before you. Okay? Every one of these promises is what God's going to do. God's going to do it. God's going to do it. God's going to do it. All you need to do is obey. Watch while he does it. Go enjoy it and enter into rest. That's a newsflash. That's what we're going to get to in the book of Hebrews. Okay? We have to enter into rest, but God's going to do it. God's going to do the work. We need to cease from thinking it's up to us to get it done. All right, so that's the use there. I like that one. Wait a minute. Let's go back to this. Um, Exodus 32, 13. I have spoken. I will give it to your descendants. They shall inherit it forever. Um, I'm telling you, it's Israel's land. <laughs> if the, the Arabs think it's theirs, the Muslims want to take it. God promised it to Israel. It belongs to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, uh, and there you go. Uh, Leviticus, uh, Leviticus only has one use. More involved in uh, the priestly function, and they didn't have a land grant. They didn't receive an inheritance, so I'm not shocked that the term uh, is not used so often there. But then look at Numbers again and again and again. A land flowing with milk and honey. Nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards and on it goes. All right, so we're, we're familiar with this, okay? We, we know that the old, to the Old Testament, 
inheritance, either the verb to inherit or to bequeath, the noun, all of that's a big deal. We get to crown, not so much, okay? It's unique in that application. Uh, I think we'll let the rest of that go, otherwise I'll get lost in inheritance, okay? Because I don't think, as I read Proverbs, it doesn't seem to me anyway, Proverbs 14, 18 and 19, the naive inherit foolishness, but the sensible are crowned with knowledge. To me, that has nothing to do with a tribe or the nation or any temporal uh, political thing or a land issue or anything at all. To me, that is a, an eternal reward for believers that are living their life under the Word of God. That this is what they have to look forward to. And especially then when you start talking about the evil bowing down before the good. When does that happen here in time? Or wicked at the gates of the righteous. All right, so while inherit and inheritance are featured hundreds of times, kather, crown, this is the only spot that kather is used in a crowning verb. Uh, the noun is used three times, and uh, it take a lot to look at these. Esther, so uh, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, we've got to back up to Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Esther one eleven. Let's see. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, a bunch of these guys, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass. There they are. Seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus uh, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, her royal uh, kether in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come as the king commanded, uh, and so the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. And this is how she gets fired. And then in chapter 2, in verse 17, is the search for a new queen. And they have a uh, talent contest. (laughs) They have... uh, harem auditions. These are tough chapters for the modern world. We don't relate well to, uh, to the process. But then in uh, chapter 2 and verse 17, uh, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So all those other women in the, in the harem, they're just concubines, uh, they're not full wives. They're not the royal queen. They don't get to wear the kether in, uh, in that. And then finally, chapter 6 and verse 8. And by the way, this is such a late book in the, in the Old Testament into the Persian era. By the time you're in the Persian era, you're practically the end of the Hebrew canon anyway. And so it's not surprising then that the vocabulary is uh, limited in the in the usages Esther 6 8 goodness there it is um, this is part of Haman's plot and uh, the king is uh, the king is trying to find a way to honor Mordecai uh, Haman thinks the king is trying to, to honor him as any uh, arrogant fool always thinks he's the center of the universe and uh, so the king wants to know in verse 3 what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this. And the king's servant said, uh, you know, nothing. We haven't done anything for him. Wow, that's terrible. We've got to do something. Who's in, who's in the court right now? And they said, well, Haman had just come into the court. So they said, well, bring Haman in here. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And obviously, first thing that crosses Haman's mind is, oh, He's talking about me. And so Haman said to himself, well, who else would there be but me? You know, who would the king desire to honor more than me? Obviously, me. So Haman said to the king, well, hey, here's a plan. And he just, he just fills it up with all kinds of stuff. Uh, For the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head the royal crown has been placed. That's the kether. 
And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes. And let them array the man whom whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback throughout the city square. Proclaim before him, thus it should be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. So, I mean, boy, he did it up thick. Wow. And then the hammer falls and, (laughs) oops, Uh, the king said to Haman, all right then, everything you just said to do, go and do it to Mordecai. And you've got to be the guy holding, pulling the horse through the cart and through the, through the, the, the city square here. Uh, take quickly the robes and the horse you have, as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew. See, the king doesn't know that Haman hates Mordecai the Jew, right? Livid hatred for Mordecai. Do so to Mordecai the Jew who is sitting in the king's gate. Do not fail. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square. Anyway, can you imagine? So that's, uh, those are the three places that have Kether, all in the book of, of, of uh, Esther, all very late in origin and unrelated to other terms for crown that we would have, uh, the more common terms that we would have in, uh, in the Old Testament. So even before... Even bef- uh, evil, I'm sorry, evil bowing before the good. Evil bowing before the good and wicked outside the gates of the righteous. Those phrases, this is purely eschatological. Waiting ultimate fulfillment in the dispensation of the fullness of times. In the new heavens and on the new earth. There will be a limited application of this to start the millennium. There will be an enforced version of this during the millennium, at least for Jerusalem, where morning by morning evil will be expelled. And, uh, but it certainly won't be global in its scope. The, uh, the ultimate fulfillment of this waits for the new heavens and the new earth, what you and I are looking forward to. Because remember, it's according to His promise. We're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So evil bowing before the good and wicked outside the gates of the righteous is purely eschatological, waiting ultimate fulfillment in the dispensation of the fullness of times in the new heavens and on the new earth. So if you're looking for verses 18 and 19 to be fulfilled here and now, if you're trying to usher in the kingdom and limit you know, have the impact in our, in our nation to where everybody's saved, everybody's living in the Word of God, everybody's bearing fruit, everybody's... Well, then what do you do with those who don't want to get saved? Okay? John Calvin had the dickens of a time in Geneva trying to run a, uh, a theocracy, trying to run the kingdom on earth, and trying to do so as the Protestant Pope, trying to do so as, you know... Uh, he knew the Pope was evil. He knew that Catholicism wasn't the kingdom. He knew that all that was wrong. The Roman Catholic Church wasn't bringing in the kingdom. But Calvin tried to. And just read the history on Calvin's Geneva. And what do you do? You know, he was still baptizing infants, just like Rome. He was still, he was still putting every citizen of Geneva in the church. Whereby, of course, church attendance is mandatory. <laughs> okay. And uh, because your city mayor and your elders and your all, I mean, the political leaders were your church leaders. Train wreck. Complete and total train wreck. And uh, we better learn from that. <laughs> not only historically, but how about biblically? We're not trying to bring about a, uh, a theocracy. We're not trying to build a, a Christian commune. We're not trying to, uh, on any scale, okay? Local, city, state, national, global, on no scale. Probably the only scale where we can uh, have that blessing is in our homes. If uh, you lead your children to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, then your home is a, uh, is a Christian home. How about that? But if you have a child that rejects the gospel, then what do you do? Anyway, you can't bring about a, a Christian city where you expel the unbelievers. Where the wicked, where the evil bow down before the good, and the wicked uh, bow down or are, are removed or limited to the gates 
of the righteous. It's not going to happen on this earth. It's not going to happen until the new heavens and on the new earth. Okay? So, my favorite passages for the fullness of time, including Ephesians 1.10. This is what we're looking forward to. Why? Because this is what God's been looking forward to. Are you looking forward to something different than what God's been looking forward to? We've got a long sentence here that runs from verse 3 all the way down to verse 14. Some people even take it further, but in any event... um, There's a long list of stuff that God did for us and our position in heaven and every spiritual blessing that we have in the heavenly places in Christ and all of the glories of what it means to be saved here and now. So, fun stuff here all throughout. Uh, Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's our inheritance here and now. Heavenly places in Christ. I'm not worried about Israel's inheritance. I got a much better one as a part of the body of Christ in the church. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Presently, that's an asset we have right here, right now, and it's in heaven, and what a, what a joy. He predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Entirely different uh, in, uh, election, entirely different sonship than Israel has. Israel is a son. Israel is even a firstborn son as far as being an earthly nation uh, in the midst of other earthly nations. But this is different. To be uh, a son in Jesus Christ to himself. Israel didn't have that. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved one. Israel was not in Christ. You and I are in Christ. This is our uh, position, possession that we have presently in the church age. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That's us right here, right now. The church age, we are saved. Our sins are forgiven. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Did Israel have that? Israel was made up of believers and unbelievers alike. Not the church. There were no unbelievers in the church. There are professing professors that are not truly saved that sneak into local churches. There are unbelievers that think they're a part of a local church, but there has never been an unbeliever that's been in the church universal, baptized in union with Christ, placed in the body of Christ. You can't do that until you're saved. That's what happens when you're saved. And so in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Israel didn't have that. The church does. Which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, the mystery language introduces church. Of course, mystery is church doctrine. He made known to us the mystery of his will. What's that? What's the will of God for the church? According to the kind intention which he purposed in him, that is, in Christ. With a view, now pay attention, because God never lost sight of what his goal was. God never lost sight of where he was headed. With a view to a dispensation or an administration suitable to the fullness of times. A dispensation of the fullness of time. That's not the church age. That's not here and now. He's giving us everything here and now. But he's giving us everything here and now so that we can look forward like he's looking forward. Because everything he's given us here and now is a, is a deposit, it's a down payment. With a view to a dispensation suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the headship, summing up. Summing up is a headship term. It's a verb from kephale, head. And it's marvelous the way that we have headship, kephale, head. In this context, similar to how we have crown, in, uh, in other contexts. The fullness, uh, the suitable to the fullness of times, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. See, right now the bride's in two different places. Right now the bride, most of the bride's in heaven, the remainder of the bride's here on earth. We're waiting for a trumpet when all of us, when the bride is finally assembled. 
All right, the summing up of all things in Christ. So can we say this is fulfilled today? No. As long as there's an unbeliever on earth, then there's somebody that hadn't been summed up in Christ yet. Okay? This requires the unrighteous expelled, cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. The only ones in Christ today are believers, right? So we've got a remnant. We've got a third of the planet, probably not even that. One third, one third, one third on that proportion. Anyway. So it's looking forward. God never took his eyes off the ball. God, he did all these things from the foundation of the world, from before he predestined before the foundation of the world. He did all of that, but it was with a view to a dispensation suitable to the fullness of times. That's his end game. That's his ultimate goal. It wasn't the dispensation of angels, the dispensation of the Gentiles. He wasn't in a panic because Adam and Eve blew it in innocence. (laughs) It wasn't his end game anyway. It wasn't Israel. It's not even the church age. The church age is, is just what prepares the bride to join with Christ in the fullness of times. Not the tribulation, not the millennium. End game is the fullness of times in the new heavens and on the new earth. And you'll notice that um, by the end of this chapter, there's more future references. Um, notice uh, in verse 21, it's not only this age, but also in the one to come. If you think the church age blessings are something, just wait. The one to come. Chapter 2 and uh, verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That gets lost. That totally gets lost. People were constantly quoting Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Constantly quoting Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. And it's a powerful gospel. And it's a powerful message. And I love it. Yes, by grace you've been saved through faith. Okay? Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Don't stop preaching that. Give the gospel. But when you give the gospel... Let folks know that the grace he's showing us now, today, in the church age, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's in the ages to come. He might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The church age is the age of grace. Fullness of time is, the, is super grace. I'm telling you, it's ultra super grace. It's, it's the surpassing riches of his grace. But it's in the ages to come. The ages to come. Chapter 3 as well. Um, There are things that happen presently, like verse 10. Notice also in verse 9, to bring to light what is the administration or the dispensation of the mystery. If you want to tell me that the fullness of time is the church age, you've got a problem. Because the fullness of time is the administration of the fullness of time. The church age is the administration of the mystery. This is the church age right here. To bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Now here's something present. Here's now. Here's the church age. Here's Austin Bible Church. Here's you and me, 2018 A.D., the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. But the, what happens now is just part of an eternal plan. This is in accordance with the eternal purpose. And so what's coming up later? We'll look to the uh, end of the chapter. To him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we could ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church. But it doesn't stop there, does it? See, the now of what we're doing is preparing us for the fullness of time. The Father never took His eye off that goal, and neither should we. In the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The fullness of time is going to have a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ. And you and I in the church are going to be that fullness as we apply this in the, uh, in the thing there. All right? So Ephesians 1.10.
plus extra in Ephesians I threw out there, no charge. <laughs> Second Peter 3.13, I don't have to turn there, you know it. You quote it, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Hello, are you looking for that? See, this is why I'm going to get it across in Houston. Too many people are looking for the millennium. The Bible doesn't tell us to look for the millennium. Does the Bible ever say, hey, look to that thousand-year reign that Jesus rules with a rod of iron because he deals with rebels the whole time and finally culminates with a Gog-Magog rebellion at the end that the Father has to blast from heaven with fire? The Bible never tells us to look for that. But we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation 21 and 22. Okay. On our way there, let's stop in Revelation 20 and have some fun. I've got four minutes, so it won't take long. I do this with the students in Kiev. They love it. It works. So I'll do it with you here. Okay. You realize millennium never shows up in the Old Testament. Never. We got, we got prophet after prophet after prophet, the major prophets, 12 minor prophets, the Psalms, all kinds of prophecies. The kingdom is always spoken of as an eternal kingdom. It's never spoken of as a thousand-year kingdom, ever. Abraham had eternal promises. David had eternal promises. But we get to Revelation 20, and all of a sudden we have a millennium. The only place in the Bible we have a millennium is here. And so we get excited about it because it's used over and over and over again, right? Verse 2 of Revelation 20 says, He laid hold of the serpent and bound him for a thousand years. Good deal. Threw him in the abyss, shut it and sealed it so the nation, he won't deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. And then thrones and they sat on them and they come to life and they reign with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. In verse 6, blessed and holy, and they will be priests of God and Christ who will reign with him for a thousand years. So, man, that's a big deal. Two, three, four, five, six, all those verses, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. I can't wait. This must be an exciting thing. And then you get to verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan is... Well, wait, wait, it's over? The thousand years are completed? You were building me up through all those verses, getting me all excited about this thousand-year millennium, and, and then all of a sudden in verse 7, you're telling me it's over? Wow, that went by fast. <laughs> Where did that go? Okay. See, I used to think, time goes by faster when you're getting older. Nowadays, you know, a decade can go by like, four years used to go by or like a year used to go by and a thousand years is going to go by like that we're going to be in resurrected glory to us it's just a day it's a day of the lord the millennium is not a big deal if you want to take my test in in revelation the answer is when i ask where is the millennium found in in revelation the answer is in between verse six and verse seven of revelation chapter 20 because you get five verses talking about what's going to happen and then you get a verse when, after it's all over. And it's all over for the rest of the chapter. So chapter 21 and chapter 22 are uh, really the chapters, and I'm, I'll have to come back to this next week. We have the millennium is in between two verses, but the fullness of time gets two chapters. The fullness of time gets chapter 21 and chapter 22. The millennium is squeezed in between two verses. The, the fullness of time gets two chapters. That's a big contrast, I think. Okay? Um, real quick, 21.8, for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns the fire and the brimstone, which is the second death. They were cast into the lake of fire at the great white throne at the end of chapter 20. They never once set foot on the new earth. They never once set foot in the new heavens. They never once set foot in the new Jerusalem. They are locked in the lake of fire for all eternity. Verse 8 reminds us of that. Verse 27 reminds us of that. The nations are bringing in glory. The nations are bringing in tribute. And every one of them is saved. No unbeliever ever does. Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
Realize in the millennium, even though it starts with all believers, they're still living in a world that unbelievers used to walk on. They're still living in a fallen earth. 22, 14, and 15. Blessed are those who wash the robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Now they're outside the gates. Of course they're outside the gates. They're in the lake of fire. But why do they use outside the gate language here? I think it's because Proverbs uses outside the gate language in Proverbs 14. I think it's because the Old Testament uses outside the gate language when it promises us that the wicked will bow down to the righteous, that the evil will bow down to the good, that the wicked will be outside the gates. And so it's phrased this way in Revelation 22. Anyway, new heavens and new earth never have a single unbeliever, never have a single sin. And that's what we have to look forward to. Evil bowing down before the good. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this day. Look forward to this evening's message and to the preparation for the conference in Houston. And in all these things, Father, we pray for clarity. We pray for your Holy Spirit to bless thinking because um, fullness of time is, is not a familiar study to a whole lot of people that put a, a major emphasis on the millennium as per their uh, Schofield Bibles and their traditional dispensational diagrams. So, Father, uh, open our eyes to see your truth. I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.